Uh, tonight we're going to talk about the early church and how they perceived people who were not martyrs, or at least not martyrs in the traditional way that we think of them, all right? Not that these people did not suffer. That's one thing that many people have a misunderstanding, that the uh, saints led such an easy life in the monasteries or the, the convents, you know, and everything is provided for them, and they have an easy life. Uh-uh. Far from it. I have a sister who is uh, a nun, a sister, and uh, believe me, she has plenty of problems. This past week, she had to uh, almost be forced into an assisted living facility because she could no longer live alone. And uh, that is, is rather difficult sometimes, even for nuns and uh, priests or religious of any kind. All right? uh, even though they enjoy many uh, benefits, uh, there are trials of all kinds, and none of us escape them, uh, particularly the saints. And you'll find that in the seven people that we'll be talking about tonight, and that's going to be rather brief for each one of them, uh, each one of them had their own way of suffering, their own uh, suffering, and God helped them through it. Right? So, the saints do not escape suffering of some kind, whether it be mental or uh, physical or spiritual. They all have some part to play in that particular area. Tonight, we want to talk about the first uh, of the Doctors of the Church. The first uh, seven doctors of the church uh, from the fourth century. Now, I have to set the scene because if you don't understand the scene, you don't understand what's going on behind it, then it doesn't sort of click in as to the problems that some of these people face. All right? After the persecutions ended, by the Edict of Milan, signed by Constantine. And it was called Edict of Milan because Milan was, for a temporary uh, period of time, uh, the capital of the Roman Empire. All right. And Constantine, who did finally become a Catholic, perhaps on his deathbed, but nevertheless, uh, because of the good graces and the many prayers of his mother, St. Helena, uh, signed this Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., which ceased the persecutions, ceased crucifixion of any kind throughout the Roman Empire, and gave everyone the freedom of expressing and living their own faith. But then he went a little bit further. Okay, He said that everybody that belonged to any branch of the royal family uh, or the government uh, in any way, shape, or form had to become a Roman Catholic. 
Well, you can't force religion on anybody. How good it might be it makes no difference. Uh, you just can't force it. So that created some of his, some problems. But nevertheless, Constantine did a lot of good for the church. Uh, and he was responsible for many things that most people aren't aware of. For example, the change and the celebration of Sunday as the Catholic Sabbath. That was an order by Constantine in respect and reverence for the resurrection being on Sunday and the descent of the Holy Spirit being on Sunday. Okay. There were many other things that he uh, did that were very beneficial to the church. He protected the church. He supported the church. He built the first major basilica. Our, uh, well, it wasn't called St. Mary Majors at the time, but if you're in, ever in Rome, uh, St. Mary Major was the first uh, church of its kind, the first basilica built by a Roman Empire uh, emperor. And it was the first of the major churches of all of Christendom. Okay, St. Mary Major. And the reason it was called St. Mary Major is because it was for many, many years the central or mother church of Christianity. (laughs) But now that the Christians were allowed to practice their faith, they sort of came out of the catacombs, you might say, and hiding and so forth, and they began to express themselves in many ways, things that were not uh, in line with Catholic thinking, because up till this point in time, there was no canon law, there was no catechism, and there were uh, gaps in a lot of documentation of what we did believe. So along this line, um, there were differences of opinion as to how to express certain facets of our faith. And one of the largest uh, or the greatest problems was the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, you know, what's the big deal about that? We all accept that, do we not? You'd be surprised how many people even today do not fully understand the dual nature of Christ, both being fully human and fully divine. So, what happened back in the 4th century is a very enterprising uh, monk who decided that he wasn't going to believe that. His name was Arius. uh, And he actually broke away from the mainstream of the church and developed a theology of his own that was not in line with uh, the thinking of the Pope. But nevertheless, many people followed him. And so the Arian heresy uh, became a major, major problem for the early church. And it was only through the efforts of these 
uh, most of them, not all, but most of these seven men that we will be talking about tonight, that the Arian heresy was finally condemned in the Council of Ephesus in 434 AD. But it didn't really die out then. Not for another two or three hundred years did it fully die out. It was one of these long-lived things, even though the church had condemned it. All right? So, what I want to do is to go... Well, first of all, I want to back up, though. Is there anybody here that has... And don't be afraid to kind of let me know in some way. Is there anyone here that has a problem with understanding the dual nature of Christ as being fully God and fully human? Bless you, my children. That's so great. Didn't want to get into explaining that anyways. Uh, but one of the things that I would like to talk about is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. People get hung up on that. I've had many people over the years ask me about how can Jesus, if he is God, also be the Son of God? And has anyone ever thought about that? Yeah. It's, it's a normal question in our minds. And you have to look at it this way. When we talk about Jesus as being the Son of God or the Son of Father, we can't think of Son as being a biological Son. Alright? You have to go back to the thinking of the culture in the time of Christ, before and after, for that matter, when a father and a son were so close together that the culture developed this relationship that the father and the son were almost as one person. The father would nurture the son. The Of course, this is always the oldest and the firstborn son. All right. Uh, the others to a lesser degree. But the relationship between the father and the firstborn son was so close, it was almost like they were one person. And that's the thinking that Jesus wanted to present himself as the son of God. All right. He never used that phrase himself. He was always called the Son of Man, and that comes out of the book of uh, the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, where uh, <coughs> in a vision, Daniel sees this divine person. In addition to this elderly person, you might say, with the white hair and on the fiery throne and all of that, there is someone else there. All right, but he looks more like a man than an angel, and yet, because of what is said in this vision, they knew that he was more than an angel, and therefore he must have been God himself. But the book of Daniel never got into the theology of explaining that, but Jesus went back in referring to himself uses this term, the Son of Man, out of Daniel, which really represents somebody who is greater than the angels, 
but also appears like a human being, a man. All right? Uh, because if he called himself the Son of God, technically, anyone at that time period in that culture, the firstborn male, could call himself a Son of God, with the Son being in a small s. All right? That was normal because the firstborn male was always dedicated in the temple to God. Right? If you go back to the uh, story of Eli and, and Samuel in the Old Testament, uh, you'll see that that is kind of what that whole story is, is all about. Um, Eli, <coughs> excuse me, was uh, the priest of the temple and Samuel's mother came and dedicated Samuel as a very young uh, child uh, to God and left him in the temple for the rest of his life. All right. This was a promise she made um, as a um, older lady who was barren and she promised God if she could have a son that she would dedicate him uh, to the service of the temple for life. And she did. Samuel grew up, of course, to be a great, uh, not prophet, but a very uh, great servant of God in, in the priestly fashion. Okay. Any questions before we get into this uh, history of the early church? Yes. Yes, it was not unusual. There were women there also. And Yes, Maria's question is, who, if he was brought there as a very young child, who took care of him? And there were women there who, excuse me, were dedicated to doing that. All right. For example, in uh, the time when Christ was taken to the temple uh, for the dedication, there was a priestess there. All right. And uh, that was not unusual. Okay. All right. Okay, I'd like to get in and talk to talk to you about this. And I'm going to read out of this book. I was going to uh, condense it and, and present it. Uh, but in the process of doing so, I came with the, up with about, hmm, let's see, 30 pages or so. I don't think so, you know. I don't want to keep you here until 10 o'clock. By the way, do any of you uh, have questions about last week's? Uh, particularly the DVD that we showed last week on Solana's Casey. Any problems of any kind? I apologize again for keeping you so late, but I hope you found it interesting enough to accept that. Yeah, that's good. Okay. All right. St. Athan Athanasius. <coughs> Born about the year 295, Lived until 373. Of course, we're talking about A.D. now. Was an outstanding defender of the and teacher of the faith and was very instrumental at the First Council of Nicaea on the divinity of Jesus Christ against the Arians, who held that Jesus was not divine, but only the greatest of creatures, Athanasius was born of Christian parents in Alexandria and educated um, 
and its famed catechetical school. Athanasius became a deacon and secretary to his bishop Alexander, whom he accompanied to the Council of Nicaea. In 328, while still in his early 30s, now, that's an important point. Still in his early 30s. Remember, tradition tells us that Jesus, when he started his public ministry, was about 30 years old. And that's again, because of the culture of the time, 30 was the age at which a person reached maturity in this particular culture. We use the uh, age of 21 as the legal age um, and yet in that culture it was 30. So that's why this point is being made. While still in his early 30s Athanasius became the bishop or the metropolitan patriarch of Alexandria. To see a comparable <coughs> A C, a C meaning a diocese, comparable in prestige to Jerusalem and Antioch, still in his early 30s. He took his new responsibilities seriously, making extensive pastoral visits throughout the region. However, he came under heavy personal attack by those opposed to, his, to the teaching of the council, who questioned even the validity of his election. His election had been the result of popular acclaim given his growing reputation as a theologian and defender of the faith. Now, that's how bishops way back, <coughs> excuse me, uh, at that time period uh, were appointed by popular acclaim. In other words, by the population of the diocese. He was a very dynamic preacher and writer and helped out a great deal in the, the Council of Nicaea and therefore was uh, elected when his bishop, Alexander, uh, died <coughs> and he was elected to succeed him. He wasn't even a priest. All right? And we have another one in here. Uh, who became a cardinal without even having been a priest. But they hurried up and made sure that he got there, one way or the other. Okay. He was banished, I'm, I'm going to kind of paraphrase uh, from memory most of this. He was banished from his see because of the Opposition that came up uh, against his form of teaching. Remember, there was no uh, strong central government of the church in Rome or anywhere else uh, at that particular time. Constantine uh, was very helpful in the church, but he still maintained control. So you have to be a little careful uh, on that. <coughs> now, if you know the background between Constantine and his father and Constantine and his brother, it was like a three-way circus, you might say, um, because they were all vying for 
control of both the east and the western portion of the empire. The eastern portion being in Constantinople, and of course the western portion being in Milan, not Rome. Remember, Rome was beginning to deteriorate uh, and fall apart by the 4th century and by the end of the 5th century, well, not even the end, the middle of the 5th century, it did. It was sacked by the uh, northern tribes. So we have a problem uh, (coughs) here that creates this three-way Well, whatever it is, uh, I, I hate, to, I, I, I have a few words like in my mind, but I don't think that would be too polite. Um, but anyways, eventually Constantine uh, gained control of both the east and the west, particularly after his father died, and his brother was executed, etc. And that quieted things down. Okay. But the opposition of the heresies did not die down that early. From yes, yes, you had you had three major heresies going at the time, all right, <coughs> and they were often uh, combined, you might say, where they were intermingled, and those were called Gnostics. Okay. G N O S T I C. Yeah. All right. Uh, from 366 until his death in 373, he functioned once again after being restored to his see without harassment as Bishop of Alexandria. His liturgies and sermons were well attended and candidates for monastic life uh, multiplied. Indeed, several of his writings were addressed to monks and as mentioned above, he wrote a celebrated biography of Anthony of Egypt that was enthusiastically received in both East and West. He was an extraordinary prolific author during his uh, periods of exile. Uh, His writing on the incarnation and the discourses against the Arians clarified the notion of the Trinity and the central Christian belief in the enfleshment or the... (coughs) (laughs) excuse me, the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus of Nazareth. Athanasius was proclaimed in 1568 as one of the four doctors of the church in the East. Now, Mike, you asked me, I think it was last week or the week before, if there were any saints that we recognized from the Eastern Church. And yes, Four out of these seven are from the East. Yeah. Remember, there was no major split in the church. There was a split in the Roman Empire, but not in the church at this time. The East and the West did not split, or the schism did not happen until the 10th century. Okay. There was a lot of friction, uh, but never a total split until the 10th century. Says, uh, Athanasius was proclaimed in 1568 as one of the four great doctors of the church in the East, alongside Basil the Great, Gregory Nanzianzen, uh, and John Chrysostom. 
His feast is on the general Roman calendar and is celebrated by all the major Christian liturgical traditions uh, on this day. This feast is also celebrated in the East on January the 18th. <laughs> now here's one that you may not have, have heard much about. Ephraim the deacon, also a doctor of the church. He's often called Ephraim of Syria. Again, an eastern person. <clears throat> Ephraim of Syria was the author of numerous hymns and works of biblical exegesis, for which he was named a doctor of the church in 1920, the only Syrian to be so honored. Born in Nisibis, or part of Mesopotamia, he was baptized in the year 324, a convert, and joined the cathedral school there, eventually becoming its head. After the Persians captured Nisibis in 363, Ephraim took up the life of a monk in a cave near Edessa in Greece. It was during this period that he produced his many hymns, over 500 survive, and exegetical writings on nearly the whole of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament. His hymns were sung during the liturgy, and his exegetical writings uh, were translated into several languages and often read immediately after the readings of the scriptures. He was also renowned for his preaching and is referred to by Catholics and Orthodox Syrians alike as the harp of the Holy Spirit. He was ordained a deacon, perhaps late in his life. <coughs> um, in 372, he organized a relief effort on behalf of famine victims in and around Dessa, Edessa, and died a month later in his cave. Ephraim's feast is on the general Roman cal calendar and is commemorated by the Church of England on this day. His feast is celebrated by the Russian and Greek Orthodox churches on January the 28th, and he is commemorated by the Episcopal Church in the U.S. on June the 10th. So, almost all the liturgical, major liturgical churches recognize Ephraim um, the Syrian, a deacon. He was not a priest. Uh, or a bishop. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Hillary of Poitiers. Poitiers is in France. Born about the year 315, died in 367, was a vigorous and outspoken defender of orthodoxy against Arianism. All right. Remember, um, Ephraim of the Syrian had really no battle with Arianism uh, because of the location that he came from, okay, Syria. Uh, let's see, uh, let me back up here a little bit. <clears throat> Hilary of Poitiers was a vigorous and outspoken defender of orthodoxy against Arianism, which held contrary to the Council of Nicaea in 325, 
that Jesus Christ was the greatest of creatures, but not the equal of God. Born at, born at Poitiers, uh, which is now in the central of uh, southwest part of modern-day France, was of wealthy uh, pagan parents. Hillary became a Christian in 350 after a long period of study, uh, and about three years later, he was elected bishop of his hometown, probably while still married. Oh, my goodness gracious. <clears throat> his manner was always courteous and friendly, but his writings were sometimes severe in tone. Some described him as the Athanasius of the West. Jerome referred to him as the trumpet of the West. Okay, all right. But he had many problems with the Arians again. The Arians had regarded him as the sower of discourse and the troublemaker of the Orient, and so were pleased to see him leave because he was exiled um, I think I, by Constantius. That's uh, the brother of Constantine. Okay. <laughs> the Arians had regarded him as the sower of discourse and the troublemaker of the Orient, and so pleased to see him leave. Gaul itself became the center of Nicaea orthodoxy in the West, and Hillary its chief proponent. He conveyed a synod of Gallic bishops in Paris in 361, at which the Nicene Creed was ratified completely and ambiguously. His most famous work was the um, De Trinite, Latin for On the Trinity, written against the Arians and, for the most part, while in exile in the East. He was not yet 60 when he died. Exhausted by his travels, his, his exile, and his constant engagement in controversy, he was named a doctor of the church by Pope Pius the ninth in 1851. His feast is on the general Roman calendar and is also observed on this day by the Church of England and the Episcopal Church in the United States. Okay. So, there's two guys that had uh, real problems with the Arian heresy. Cyril of Jerusalem, bishop and doctor of the church, born about the year 315 and died in 386, was the bishop of Jerusalem from 350 until his death in 386, and is a doctor of the church primarily because of his brilliant catechesis preserved in a series of 23 homilies addressed to baptismal candidates and to the newly baptized. Born in or near Jerusalem and well educated there, especially in scripture, he was ordained a priest in 345 and given the task of instructing catechumens. <coughs> Excuse me. He became bishop in the year 350 and was soon embroiled in controversy with Acacius, the metropolitan of Caesarea who had consecrated him 
over the relative importance of their two sees, their dioceses. Uh, Acacius regarded Jerusalem <coughs> as one of his suffragan sees, and over doctrinal matters as well, charged with insubordination, having sold church goods for the sake of the poor and with supporting the teaching of the Council of Nicaea, Cyril refused to appear before a synod of bishops in Caesarea to answer complaints, either because there were too many Arians present and he would not fair, get a fair hearing, or because he refused to be judged by other than a patriarchal synod. The emperor was drawn into the dispute, and Cyril was exiled in 357. You see, the central control by the Pope was not real strong, even at that time. And this, of course, is... <laughs> excuse me. 300 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. He was recalled two years later, after the Council of Seleucia reinstated him and deposed his accuser, Cassius. However, Cyril was banished twice more after that. Indeed, he would spend uh, 16 of his 35 years as a bishop in exile. So you see, none of these people uh, had an easy life. Not because of the times uh but because of the culture and the whole fact that the church was still in its infancy and still growing. Um, there were a number of things yet to be decided. The whole idea of the Trinity still had not been brought together as yet. The whole idea of Christ's death on the cross as atonement for man's sins, that didn't actually get cemented until the 10th century by St. Anselm in England. And so you have a number of these problems constantly creating turmoil because half of the church believes this way and half of the church believes that way. Of course, nothing has changed. We still have those kinds of splits. But nevertheless, you can see how these poor guys had nowhere to go. They developed much of their own theory, but they had no place else uh, or no one above them, such as a strong pope, to say, this is where it's going to be. Yes? When they were exiled, the, the government, the pope, the, the parishioners, who exiled it? Mostly the, the uh, emperor. Okay. So it yeah. would be political. It was political. Yes. I, I, I don't know. I just don't remember offhand. I don't want to give that, you know. Yeah. Um, <coughs> See, you had a struggle between Constantine and his father and his brother. All right. Well, the father died early, so that was out. But the brother uh, who was in in Constantinople uh, and 
Constantine. See, one was Constantine, the other one was Constantius. So you have even confusion in the names. Yeah. So. <coughs> Excuse me. Gregory of Nazianzus. Yes, Joe. In some cases, yes. But not all of them, no. No, you see, each one was a, uh, well, most of them were bishops. And so they were only had power in their own diocese, or as this book calls them, sees, which is the same meaning. You would expect them to meet at a council? Yes. 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 And they did. They did. But when they went back to their own seats, you know, because of the distance and the lack of convenient travel, uh, traveling at that time, uh, they probably didn't see each other very often. Yeah. If at all. Yeah. He was not God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The question was, the Arian heresy, clarifying it, really, believed that Jesus was a good man, a great man, and all of that, but was not God. Okay. Well, if that were true, then the whole purpose of coming to earth would have been just to teach us something. But that wasn't God's so that wasn't Jesus' only purpose. He came to fulfill the sacrifice that only a perfect divine person could do. And he did. Um, now, way back at the time of St. Paul in the first century, Paul clearly states that the atonement, the gift that the Father gave us through his son dying on the cross was what repaid what we could not repay. And that is the debt due to our sins. And if Jesus was not divine, then he would have been just a great teacher and no more. And we'd still be Suffering the fact that we could not get to heaven. Well, you have Islam believes that. You know, Islam will all does uh, recognize many of the personages of our Bible. Old Testament and New, including Jesus and Mary, but does not accept or recognize them or God, Jesus as being God, and does not recognize the atonement. And like I said, a lot of people, even in the Catholic Church, didn't get that clear in their own mind until the 10th century. Yes, sir. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in Christ as God. Yes. That's, that's one of the rules. 
Yeah, yeah. And I sometimes think that um, the Mormons have a leaning towards that also, although they won't come out and define it. Okay. Yes, Mike? How did they explain Christ's They don't. They just ignore it. That's right. Uh, well, many Catholics do that today, you know. Many Christians do that. They only accept the things that they want to believe and don't accept others. Well, now, yes, but that's an average. You've got to be careful. You're right. Um, but even in the Bible, it talks, uh, one, of the, one of the Psalms talks about uh, the average life of men was 70 and maybe 80 for those who are strong, which means is that those who got past infancy, they led a life with the same expectancy that we have today. But there were so many that died early that when you average it all out, that's why the life expectancy was very low. Well, that's only because you averaged out so many uh, infants or young people. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I said. You know, there's a lot of people today that still doubt uh, the divinity of Christ and ignore the resurrection altogether. Yes, it's unfortunate, but uh, you'll always have that. So there's very little we can we can do or say about it. Okay, let's go on to uh, Basil uh, the Great. Oh, you mean I didn't ever, never got there first? <laughs> um, actually, Basil and, and Gregory, Gregory sort of go together. It says the two of them um, were two of the, the three famous Cappadocian fathers, a designation taken from the name of the Roman province in East, East Central Asia. The third of the Cappadocians was Basil's younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa. Their writings and sermons effectively put an end to uh, Arianism, a fourth century heresy that denied the divinity of Christ, referring to him instead as the greatest of creatures. All right, this again is talking about Jesus being the greatest of creatures, but still not God. Basil, uh, also known as the Great, was born in Caesarea, which of course is in um, Israel, the capital of the Roman province of Cappadocia, 
One of nine children, he came from a distinguished and pious family, to say the least. His father and mother, his sister and two brothers, and his grandmother are all venerated as saints. Now, you got to be careful of that, because, again, there was no documentation, there was no cause for canonization or the process that we talked about at that time. They were all very good people, no doubt, and <coughs> they were venerated as being holy people. Leave it there. Okay. His father was a teacher of rhetoric and his mother was a wealthy aristocrat. Basil was educated first at home by his father and grandmother and then uh, in Constantinople and Athens where he befriended Gregory of Nazianzus. <coughs> Excuse me. The other saint honored him this day upon his return. <coughs> Excuse me. Gregory of Nazianzus. The other saint honored on this day. <coughs> upon his return home in 355 Basil taught rhetoric but he renounced his career after a tour of monastic settlements in Syria, Palestine and Egypt and following his father's death in 358 he was baptized along with his friend Gregory and joined other members of his family in an ascetic community on one of the family estates in Pontus it was during this five-year period that Basil de developed through the dialogues with his monastic disciples the long and the short rules that were to influence Benedict of Nursia and, through him, all of Western monasticism. They also helped to shape monastic um, monasticism in the East, including Russia, where he is honored as one of of its patron saints. Nearly all of the monks and nuns of the Greek church in this day follow his longer rule with emphasis on community life, liturgical prayer, and manual labor. It is sufficiently flexible to allow for almsgiving and work in hospitals and guest houses without sacrificing its strongly contemplative dimensions. <laughs> In other words, he did not get entangled in the Arian heresy problem. Okay. In uh, 1568, Basil was proclaimed a doctor of the church uh, or outstanding teacher of the faith, one of the four original doctors of the church from the east. Okay. Gregory of Nanzian, <coughs> also known of as Gregory of Nanziasus. Uh, I guess it's the way you pronounce it or spell it. No, no, not Nicaea. No. And also as Gregory the theologian was a son of the bishop of Nanziasus in Cappadocia. Like Basil, Gregory came from a wealthy family of saints. His mother, brother, sisters, and brother were, um, where he was broadly educated in Christian writing and in Greek philosophy in Caesarea, Alexandria, and Athens, where he began a deep but sometimes troubled friendship with Basil. The two of them took up the monastic life together at Pontus in 359, where they had frequent discussions 
on theology and monasticism. After two years, Gregory went home to help his aged father manage his diocese and estates. He accepted ordination with great misgivings and even fled back to Basel for ten weeks to avoid his new duties. Later he wrote in the Apologia, or defense of his flight, which became a classic on the nature and responsibilities of the priesthood. <coughs> so, you can see, none of these people had an easy time of it. Now, let's see. Ambrose. Ambrose was also the one, I don't know if it mentions it here or not, who taught St. Augustine. Ambrose, born about 339 A.D., died in 397, <coughs> was the Bishop of Milan, whose sermons influenced Augustine's decision to become a Christian. He baptized Augustine on Easter Sunday in 386. He was born in Trier, the son of the uh, Praetorian prefect of Gaul. He studied Greek rhetoric and poetry, became a successful lawyer. In 370, he was appointed governor. <coughs> Excuse me. Governor of Emilia and... Gurgia, with his residence in Milan, the administrative capital of the Western Empire, as I said earlier. Upon the death of this name that I can't pronounce, uh, the Arian Bishop of Milan in 374, there was street fighting uh, between Arians, uh, who held that Christ was the greatest of creatures but not equal to God, and Orthodox Catholics Loyal to the teaching of the Council of Nicaea, Ambrose appealed for peace between the two sides of the assembly and convened to elect a successor. During his speech, a voice, usually identified with that of a child, was heard to say, Ambrose for bishop. The whole crowd, Arians and Orthodox alike, took up the chant, and astonishingly development <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no, I didn't cough all day long, you know. Because I didn't, I guess, talk to anybody all day long either. <laughs> the whole crowd, Aryan and Orthodox alike, took up the chant and astonishing uh, development given the fact that Ambrose, although a professed Christian, had not yet been baptized. He pleaded with the crowd in vain. Within a week, he was baptized and consecrated the bishop in Milan, with the approval of the other bishops of the province and emperor. Ambrose gave his personal wealth to the poor and his estates to the church, and at once devoted himself to the study of sacred scripture and the writings of the father of the church, especially Origen. <clears throat> Ambrose became an advocate uh, of the other great writers in the West and also encouraged monasticism. His self, himself following a quasi-monastic style 
of life within his Episcopal household and the cult of martyrs. He also proved to be a committed pastor who was always accessible to his people. Um, <clears throat> he died on Good Friday, April the 4th, 397, having lain for several uh, hours throughout the day with his hands outstretched in the form of cross while constantly moving his lips in prayer. His cult was immediately and widespread and his remains were placed under the high altar of the church of San Ambrosio in Milan in 835. He was named one of the four Latin doctors of the church alongside Augustine Jerome Gregory the Great uh, in 1298. His feast day, which is on the general Roman calendar, commemorates not the day of his death, but of his consecration as a bishop. His feast is also celebrated on this day by the Greek and Ro uh, Russian Orthodox churches, the Church of England, the Episcopal Church in the United States, and the Evangelical, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He is a patron saint of bishops and of learning. Amen. <laughs> Excuse me. Any questions? When was the, the Council or the Edict of, of Ephesus? You said that real early on. I think I got oh, 325. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's nice to hear. Ephesus. <clears throat> All right. I don't know. Yeah. Any of you have a Catholic Almanac by any chance? Catholic Almanac is sort of halfway between a catechism and a concordance. It has a world of good information. And I strongly recommend that you get it. Uh, it's not very expensive. Um, it's not a book as, as big as this, <clears throat> more pocket size, you might say. But it has a lot of good information in it, <clears throat> including all of the councils uh, are listed and a very brief uh, description of each one, what their main uh, problem or question or development was. Uh, <clears throat> and there were 21 uh, councils, so that's why I forget, you know, the dates. Yes, sir. Why did you choose these particular things? Were there more, or are you still in the world? Is there There's 33 doctors of the church, including three women. These happen to be the first. No. No. Didn't you get a list from last week? Well, that's that's the first seven on here. No, there's 33 here on both sides. Okay, and we'll be talking about some of the others later. Next week we'll be talking about three women, the only three women doctors of the church. St. Catherine of Siena, St. Um, Teresa of Avila, and St. Therese of Lisieux. Okay. That is 
what your homework is, and that is actually the sixth meeting next week. We're halfway through. Not the fifth, but the fifth. No, that would be difficult because this is the fifth. All right? Unless you want to come back and I'll repeat this one. All right. No question at all. My goodness, I thought you'd have plenty. Yes. I was just going to say on St. Athanasius, you uh, did that creed which kind of clarifies the Trinity in some way. Yes, it was the first attempt to clarify, the to clarify the Trinity. That really didn't get clarified down to uh, a doctrine and a dogma until the 12th century. Yes, sir. Evidently, one of the big problems of the time is the emperor were actually in competition with the pope to control the church. Yes. Yes, very much so. That's why a lot of these people were sent out of the country. Several times. Yeah. Uh, as it said in there, uh, the 36 years that one of these served as a bishop, 16 of them were in exile. You know, so they couldn't be overly effective. And that is because, as you pointed out, it was the competition uh, between the emperor and the pope. And, of course, the pope, well, the, the whole idea of the papacy had not developed to the degree that we have it today. Wasn't it the pope, however, who called the council? Yes. Yes. But the emperor had a lot to do with it. You might say it was almost a joint effort. Those, all of those early councils was pretty much a joint effort uh, because if the Pope didn't get the Emperor's permission or if the Emperor wanted a council and didn't get the Pope's okay, you know, it didn't happen. So it was a joint effort. Uh, and it wasn't until the collapse of the Roman Empire at the end of the uh, 5th century A.D., that Rome actually uh, took control, and always after that. Yes, Mike. All right. Well, that's a good point. Mike just asked, "What is the meaning of the word doctor in this case?" Uh, when a person receives, even today in, in the colleges, a Ph.D. degree, it can be in many different fields. Uh, it just means uh, an honorary title, uh, superior, you might say, to master. Uh, and doctor is has doesn't have the meaning of, of anything to do with the medical. It is a, an honorary title, and it usually refers, in this case, uh, to letters uh, in writing of, of theology, development of theological dogma and doctrine. Uh, that's what most of these men are being recognized for. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that would be true regardless of what the profession might be. Yes. Yes, no, that's right, yes. 
uh, John just pointed out that um, St. Peter Damien, the second one from the bottom on your, first, on your page there, that's his feast day is today, is right. Yeah. Now, that, don't confuse that one with Damien of Malachi, though. It was not the same person. All right. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not uh, faring too well here with the voice. If you have no further questions, I'd like to uh, close the meeting. Any problem? No problem. All right. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to at least explore uh, some of the ideas of the doctors of the church and their contribution uh, to the formation of our beliefs and the struggles that they went through in trying to stick to the principles for which you develop. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.